I would say one thing. Um, those who work on the G20, um, uh, which many of them, by the way, are, are youth, uh, this is the human capital that will be left, uh, that's already been left uh, after the G20, uh, that will continue um, uh, to sharpen their skills um, in terms of policy, negotiation, event planning, and so forth. This is the long-lasting policies because those people who work at the G20, now, now they are in a different part of the government, executing um, uh, the, the government vision for the future, vision 2050. Um, uh, so those people, they acquire a unique international skills that now they are able, basically, to put it um, uh, into place in order to execute uh, uh, domestic policies that will take the country to, to, to a higher level of the future. This is the 966. Hello, welcome to the 966. This is Richard Wilson. And I'm Lucian Ziegler. Today, we've got an excellent interview with Abdullah Hassan. He uh, served as a sous Sherpa and executive director for policy for Saudi Arabia during the G20 meetings. Uh, I'm looking forward to this conversation. Abdullah's a bright guy. He's, um, he was an uh, economist at the IMF. They, they swooped in and, and uh, took him over to help with uh, G20. He's now back at the IMF. Uh, the G20 is a big deal. Uh, members represent 9% of global GDP, 80% of world trade, two-thirds of the world population. Uh, it's a showcase opportunity for Saudi Arabia, and they really had to, to develop everything from scratch. Uh, one of the interesting things is um, these are the, the origins of the G20, you know, were finance-oriented, and, and a lot of the organizing entities in each country are, you know, based in the finance, but the fact is the G20 encompasses a whole array of things beyond finance, civil, political, et cetera. The, the thing that's interesting to, I think, both of us, and one of the things we want to get at is uh, what was left behind. I mean, when you have to create this out of whole cloth and go from zero to 100, uh, it was really a master class for, for Saudi, a whole generation of Saudis in terms of uh, policy development, best practices, a simple meeting, how to run a meeting, any number of things uh, that is really valuable skills that uh, now uh, a great number of young Saudis have as a result of the G20. Yeah, it's really cool. It's the first G20 to be hosted in the Arab world, uh, the first to be hosted during a pandemic, the first that ultimately had to go all virtual. Um, I think it's just a really interesting uh, interview we got. So Without further ado, here it is, uh, our interview with Abdullah Hassan. Abdullah, thank you for joining us. How are you? Very well. Thank you for having me. Delighted you're with us today. Um, I'm really excited to talk about the G20. Um, just for our listeners, I wanted to provide a little context for the G20. And not everybody's a G20 expert, including myself. Um, but this is kind of is a, is a special group. This is uh, they put together in 1999. I think the the first first actual forum summit, as it were, was in uh, 08. Um, Saudi Arabia is the only Arab country in the G20. Um, I, I think of the of the 15 or so meetings. This last one being the 15th. Um, 
most of them were major global capitals. This was a this was a sort of a new thing. Uh, it's a massive showcase for the country, the host country. So it's a big deal. It's a big deal if it's the United States, it's a big deal the UK or Australia, whomever, you know, France, they've all hosted it. Um, can you give us a context of why this opportunity was especially meaningful to Saudi Arabia? Uh, in, indeed, I mean, when when uh, when the Saudi they requested to host the G20, that was um, uh, during um, uh, the Chinese presidency in 2016, uh, when the Crown Prince uh, um, uh, Mohammed bin Salman he uh, he he was heading the delegation, and uh, and he requested that the Saudi express an interest to hold the uh, the G20 presidency. So the year after, during the, the, the Germany presidency, um, um, I mean, the G20 members, they agree um, to have it. And since then, the work started and, 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 the, and, and the Saudi uh, leadership, I mean, they, uh, they wanted, I mean, to, to achieve a uh, 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 few objectives from hosting the G20 presidency. One, as you indicated, I mean, uh, like any other countries, you want to showcase uh, the country to the rest of the world. Uh, so, in our case, also to show the Saudi as um, as um, an investment destination, as a tourist destination, given its geographical bases across um, the three continents. Um, um, uh, second is um, is uh, to lead a global agenda that is very ambitious uh, in order to tackle the twenty first century um, uh, challenges. Um, um, and 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 finally, um, to highlight the, the Saudi role in addressing timely and topical topics such as climate change, energy, women empowerment, job creations, and so forth. So, so all of these basically are some of the objectives from hosting uh, the G20 itself. And the, the timing, of course, was, uh, I'm not going to say auspicious, it, it was difficult. I mean, uh, you know, if, if the first meetings were prompted by the financial crisis of 07, 08, um, we're right in the middle of a global pandemic, uh, tremendous uh, financial hardship across the world. So, um, so you've got uh, challenges upon challenges. Um, now, when I first met you, you were uh, a, a quite capable uh, sort of economic wonk over at the IMF, which you are now. You've returned. You're like Superman. You've put on your, you know, you put, you went, you jumped into a, a phone booth and put on your cape for the G20, and now you're back at your, at your normal gig at the IMF. How did you get involved w with the Saudi secretary, the G20 Saudi secretariat? And this basically, I mean, dated back to May 2018, um, when, uh, uh, when His Excellency Dr. Fahad Mbarak, um, 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 he was in a visit to, to, to DC for a business visit and uh, he was meeting with international organization. So when he dropped by, by the IMF, um, uh, he met with, um, uh, with the Saudi staff. Uh, and during the discussion, he presented um, uh, the ambition of the Saudi leadership uh, in hosting the, the G20. Uh, so, uh, in a month or so, I, I was in Saudi Arabia, as usual, during the summertime, and, uh, and I visited the Saudi G20 Secretariat. 
where I pretty much I spend the whole day um, attending the meeting, interacting with the staff, and 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 so forth. And and what what I notice within that day is very open, very well structured, very diversified uh, in, in in environment. So pretty much at the end of that day, I I, I felt it's it's like a national duty. You want to be part of this national mission, uh, which is uh, entrusted and and empower in uh, in in hosting the presidency. Uh, so I came back to DC in, in late uh, July, and then and then I applied for a sabbatical from uh, from the IMF, and uh, and and I spent those two years and um, uh, with the Saudi presidency. I initially joined as a senior policy advisor, and then um, and then I was promoted until I was um, a G20 socierba and uh, and the executive director of policy. And these are basically. Two jobs. I mean, as a director of policy, you are building the policies, coordinating with at least twelve government entities on on a day-to-day basis, trying to execute um, uh, the presidency agenda. And then, as a sh- as so sherpa, more as as a political engagement with other sherpa offices um, to ensure that they 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 can reach consensus and 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 escalate the issues where needed. So you have one position more about communicating the aspect, and then one position about developing and executing uh, the agenda. The the Sue Sherpa role um, that entails, and we'll get to it at the end possibly. But you you've got to interact closely with your predecessors, right? The 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 Japanese secretary, the the you know who hosted the G20 the year previous. Is that correct? Uh, I mean, interacting with the Troika, which is basically the predecessors and also the future presidency, the Italia, but also at the same time interacting with all other socialists, uh, not only of the G20 members, but also of the invited countries that uh, that we did invite during our um, um, uh, our presidency, plus uh, other stakeholders such as international organization, think tanks, academia, and and, and so forth. So you had sort of a, both the external part, the, the Sue Sherpa role, but also you were, you know, director of planning. How uh, how did you go about developing that agenda? Um, I mean, first of all, I mean, when when you have the G20 presidency, it comes to you as a country. There is no textbook that you can go to to say this is the way that I, I'm, I'm going to develop. Uh, my, my presidency agenda, and and we felt that this gave gave us more space, as there is a first time for everything. Um, uh, so basically, I I mean um, I can bucket them into three. Uh, one of them is um, a knowledge tool, uh, and these they were done by uh, by Dr. Fahad before I joined, where he visited Australia, Turkey, China, and Germany. And he spent a couple of days in, in, in each country trying to understand how they prepare for their own presidency, how they um, executed their presidency agenda, and then what are the lessons that they learn from, from the presidency. And, and each country, it has its own way of, of doing it. So sometimes you would find that um, things are centralized, um, and sometimes you would find it more delegated at, at, at the working uh, group level. So at least that gave 
um, a, a concept um, uh, uh, to the Saudi how they should go about establishing uh, the G20 Secretariat and then um, and then them building uh, their own agenda and then uh, and then implementing that. So uh, so so. so, so yeah. Let me let me interrupt just briefly. And it's a it's a question you probably can answer. Was there a was there an approach that you the Saudis that, that you found most fitting to what you wanted to do? In other words, did some country do some, do it in a, in a manner you thought was especially appropriate to what you wanted to do, or was it an amalgamation? Yeah, yeah. I mean, we we had we had it a, a mix approach basically. So we we have in terms of uh, the the implementation and and the day to day. These are basically managed by the by the working group and so forth. And then you have the presidency agenda basically is centralized at the G20 uh, secretariat. But definitely there is a daily interaction uh, with all uh, parties, not only inside Saudi Arabia but 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 outside. Uh, the second is what we have done internally, what I call in-house. Uh, so we pretty much, because it's for the first time for us to host the G20, we are new to it. We did basically very deep dive in each of the topic of the G20, from trade, health, finance, and so forth. And we look into the history. What has been done in the G20? What are the controversial issues? And so forth. So pretty much, you can think of it in academia, having done an extensive literature review of the issues since the establishment of the G20 in 1999. So pretty much over a two decades analysis. Um, and then, and then we, um, uh, uh, from a leadership perspective, uh, we also, as I mentioned at the beginning, uh, our objective is to tackle the 21st century challenges. So we looked pretty much into what are the key challenges and the policy recommendation that are uh, have been published by the international organization, by the consultant, by the think tank, and so forth. Uh, third, we we had a deep consultation with the regional partners, such as the Arab Monetary Fund, the Islamic Development Fund, and so forth. Because as you said at the beginning, this is the first time for the G20 to come into the region. And we want to bring those regional aspects. And, and, and this is aligned with the previous presidency. For example, the Argentinian, they focus on, on the agriculture. In our case, we want to focus to bring a regional challenges such as water scarcity, youth, and so forth. And, fin and finally, you inherit something from the previous presidency, which is the Osaka summit, that you need to take forward because the leader, they agree on, on some of the commitment, and then we need to move forward. So all of these, they have been done in-house, but that was not sufficient for us. We went outside and, and we have done an extensive outreach activities. We invited pretty much all the international organization, nine of them, to Saudi Arabia to give us their perspective uh, on the issues. Uh, we also, we attended conferences and round tables in 2018 and 2019 such as the World Government Summit, Global Solutions, and so forth. And we held a side discussion with the selected speakers because we want to solicit an ideas in terms of the global challenges and, 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 and the policy solutions. Um, and then we also, we held a regional policy workshop in Singapore where we invited think tanks, academia, private sector, 
financial sector, government official from, from the Asia region. And we always ask them the same questions. What do you think are the global challenges and what are the policy recommendations? In all, Richard, I, I have to say what we got is one message from all of them, other than the policy discussion. They indicated that the way that the Saudi they have approached the G20, it's a very inclusive approach in terms of developing the presidency uh, agenda. And we truly believe in this because we as, as, uh, um, um, as a Saudi, um, um, uh, we think of a G20, I mean, it's like a train. You take it from one station to another. Uh, it just it happened that the Saudi is, is basically driving that train in that year. And therefore, we wa really wanted to be inclusive by consulting with the G20 members, but also we want to consult with, with non-governmental officials because the policy commitment that the leaders they, they make, it would have a wider implication on, on, on the global communities, not only the G20, but also the non-G20 members. So in a nutshell, these are the three things that we worked on during, during 2018 and 19 until we reached um, uh, a presidency um, agenda um, uh, that we were able to put on the table. I would say one final thing here, um, uh, Richard. As we develop our presidency agenda, we ended up with, with a lot of issues and priorities, close to 150, but we cannot discuss all of these. We had to limit them to almost 20 or 30. And we need to have a specific criteria uh, in, in order to be able to filter those. And we consulted with outsider in those criteria. Um, so those in a nutshell is basically how they are in terms of relevance, global and regional and of national interest. But also we focused on what's the value added that we can do during our presidency. Because as you know, there are many issues that are usually discussed by national organization, other conferences, other um, um, roundtables. But we said, what, this, what the G20 can add if they have to discuss this issue and then they agree on something. And second is the acceptance. Will we be able to reach a consensus? And that was a really difficult issue because, as you know, if you said, um, I want to reach a consensus and you have it as a, uh, I mean, precondition, then that might lower your ambition. Then, then you don't seek a high ambition target and you will be able to achieve it. But uh, uh, during the internal discussion, we said we will have an ambitious agenda and we will engage all the members throughout the whole process so that we will be able to reach a consensus that is highly, highly ambitious. And finally, will it be implementable, i.e., there are no financial constraints, no institutional capacity to implement something. You know, the G20, the G20 was sort of came out of the, the financial concerns. But as you as you've, you've noted before, when we've spoken, uh, there are so many other issues and, and, and uh, corollary um, aspects of it. So, for example, the G20 engagement groups, there are eight of them. And I'll read them off. Labor, science, urban, civil society, youth, women, business, think tanks. Um, the scope of this is tremendous. Uh, are you on, were you on top of all these things? I know, I know you had a tremendous, you know, a large team, but, but it's so much 
more than just the financial state of the world at this point in time. Uh, it's these rather ambitious that you, uh, other agendas. Uh, can you talk about some of these engagement groups a little bit? Um, absolutely. I mean, um, the engagement group are, are representative of the civil societies. They are independent. They have their own meetings. They have their own agenda. And then they have their own summits and, 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 and declaration, which in any other G20 presidency, uh, they submitted their recommendation um, uh, to, to, to the leaders for consideration. Um, what we have done is that um, 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 at the beginning of the presidency, um, I mean, we uh, after we finish our program, we present it to them um, uh, so that they, they know exactly what we as an official sector are going to be to be discussed uh, across the areas, labor, trade, and, and so forth, and women, um, uh, and then we we also uh, throughout the whole process because they are independent. I mean, we, we cannot interfere right. with their own business, but we also we want to hear their own perspective. <clears throat> so uh, during the official meetings um, uh, in uh, in the working group, they would have a short time where they would come. They present their own perspective to the government officials and then they would leave the meeting. So in this case, there is a close interaction between the G20 community, the official one, and then between, between the engagement group. Uh, so this is the way that we want to throw it. Uh, and, and one of the objective is also to show um, 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 uh, the civil society um, um, institution and engagement with the international community. What we heard from many, many countries that our civil societies, they were actively, were actively engaged with other members. Um, and, and, and that was, um, that was a positive feedback that we received. So, you know, uh, as part of the Saudi U.S. trade group, we're doing a daily, daily newsletter, uh, widely read and, you know, a lot of, uh, digital media, social media, that sort of thing. And, and so we were paying close attention to this event. Obviously, the G20, as I said, is a big thing. Um, we've never, I can safely say, and Lucian can, can vouch for this, because the, the engagement groups, so Lucian can speak to this, because he sort of, we did a, a, a series in the run-up to the Leaders Summit. So, because each of these engagement groups, in turn, um, presented their findings and their agreements and that sort of thing. So, you had a whole series of things, very well choreographed. So, so, and and we do a feature, uh, a feature article on each one. Lucian put these together, and and so we got to know the G20 much better than ever before. Um, one of the striking things about the G20, again, I return to, and I don't want to beat a dead horse because I, I think this is something you've lived with for for three, four years now. Uh, was why this was especially notable for Saudi Arabia, and one of the funny, one of the interesting things. I mean, when you talk about the some of the, the, the important emphases of the event, you know, empowering people, safeguarding the planet, shaping the, shaping the, the new frontiers. I don't know that any host country has ever had anything that coincides so closely with what they're trying to do as a country in the first place. When you look at Vision 2030, when you look at the, the three things, that, you know, the, the major tenets of that 
program and that vision. It lines up very closely. I, I thought the, the synchronization was, was striking. Um, and I don't know if that was something that the, the Secretariat was aware of, aware of, but there was a great deal of consistency between what Saudi Arabia has, has put out as goals for themselves as a country and a lot of the discussion ongoing in terms of the, this particular G20 Leader Summit. Okay. No, it, it's a very good question. Uh, I, I mean, we, we have done... Uh, um, um, uh, this analysis um, at the end, I mean, after we finish our presidency agenda. And, and we did find that uh, there is uh, a large uh, alignment between um, the Fijian 2030 and, uh, um, and, 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 uh, and the Saudi G20 presidency. Uh, and this is not surprising because the global challenges um, pretty much are similar in many countries. Uh, we, you want to create jobs, uh, you want to ensure access to opportunities, you want to bring people to the financial system through financial inclusion. Um, uh, we need to basically uh, to ensure sustainability by safeguarding our planet. Um, uh, what are the energy uh, mix that, that you need? And we are also affected by the technologies um, every day. In many countries are building smart cities in our case in Saudi Arabia, it's a new and, and so forth. Um, uh, infrastructure, um, I mean, is, is really affected by, by the technology and so forth. Therefore, finding a close alignment between a Fijian 2030 and what we put on the table as, as a presidency agenda, uh, it was not surprising because, I mean, the Saudi, they face the same challenges like any other capitals in, in the G20 and non-G20 countries. You want to create jobs, you want to ensure sustainable environment, and you want to utilize and harness uh, uh, the technologies for the benefit of the people. Abdullah, I'm curious about, um, so as you guys were organi organizing the G20 in March, the world was hit with a global pandemic. And as if it weren't enough to manage such a large undertaking alone. Um, early March, things started shutting down. There was a lot of uncertainty. Could you talk a little bit about how the pandemic affected your ability to organize and the decision to go ahead and hold the summit virtually? Absolutely. I mean, when when the World Health Organization, they declare uh, COVID-19 as a pandemic uh, just before mid of March, uh, we move swiftly and His Majesty uh, King Salman. He invited the G20 countries for an extraordinary summit that was held uh, in March 2016, uh, March 26, uh, um, and, uh, and it was uh, chaired by His Majesty uh, King Salman. Um, 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 so during the summit, uh, the, the leaders, they were really committed uh, to addressing, I mean, both the health and economic crisis. And, and at that summit, um, uh, um, I mean, they send pretty much two messages, I can summarize them. One, protecting life and livelihood. Uh, this is a top priority. Um, uh, and second, um, uh, ensuring that the economy can get back in its feet over the, over the short term, but also ensuring having a stronger recovery uh, over the medium term. 
So these are the two messages that came out of, uh, uh, of the March 26. Um, there are outcomes that were immediately included in, in the declaration of March 26, and, and something came a few weeks later. So basically, the leaders, they, uh, they injected $5 trillion at that point of time in, in, in March into the global economy. Uh, they, they pretty much also injected $21 billion uh, to fight the pandemic, including for the development of, uh, of the vaccine. And, and here I can mention that the, the Saudi also took the lead by uh, immediately contributing $500 million to WHO, CPI, and GAFI. Um, uh, and then um, uh, third is basically sending a strong message to ensure the smooth flow of vital medical supplies and, and agricultural products across country. And finally, not forgetting um, um, uh, their role as, as a G20 um, to support the low-income countries uh, they agree on a dead surface suspension initiative, which basically helped, as you know, 73 countries for almost $14 uh, billion in order to ensure the availability of, uh, of the resources to, to support the health and the financial need uh, of those countries. It's, it's actually quite striking when you outline it that way, because because. I felt like Saudi Arabia uh, pivoted quickly uh, to the new circumstance. It's going to be virtual and obviously with the, the pandemic. But when you outline what came out of those initial meetings that were sort of uh, had the G20 format as the anchor, it's, 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 it's something to be quite proud of. Uh, it was not easy, by the way, to switch to virtually because, um, as you know, I mean, G20 is used to have in-person meeting, you would negotiate a declaration. So it was for us a new territory, how can you negotiate a leader declaration virtual? Um, um, and, 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 and that basically was, was a challenge at the beginning. And it helped us to, to basically actively engage bilaterally with the countries itself. So pretty much you would spend um, a lot of your day over the phone, given the time difference. So you will be having calls in the morning <laughs> with the aging countries during the middle of the day with the European, and then on the evening, you have a call with the Western Hemisphere countries um, uh, in order to, to try to basically to narrow the differences among the countries. So when you have a meeting, you only discuss the few, the few remaining issues. Um, and, and throughout the whole process, in order to narrow out, uh, to narrow down the issues, uh, we you really need to act as an honest broker, and 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 that basically we we continue with it from the beginning of the presidency, trying to narrow the differences among the countries and only call for the meeting to just resolve the few remaining issues. So this is one of the challenge that we faced, um, and 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 after we had a very successful. Um, Leader summit and the remaining ministerial meetings, and also uh, the leader summit meeting in November. Um, uh, we, we learned a lot from that experience in March 26. What was uh, what was the most difficult issue on which to reach agreement among all your G20 participants? 
Or mm-hmm. is, you can, you can, if that's a plural, which I suspect it is, you can, you can answer all of them. But if there's one that stands out in particular, um, I mean, I first of all, um, the year of 2020, it was a very challenging year globally. You have a health crisis, you have an economic crisis, you have also election that is happening in, 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 in many countries. So there are lots of moving parts at the same time. But what you have, you have a commitment from the G20 countries to deal with the issues. Uh, yes, there are some easier issues than, than another, but as long as you continue to have the dialogue among the G20 countries, you are able to reach a consensus. So for example, I mean, climate, uh, climate is not an easy issue for many, 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 many countries. And in, 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 in the previous uh, uh, years, uh, for example, when it comes uh, to, to the climate, you would find also some divergent views when it comes to, to agreeing on, 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 on a language for, 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 for a Paris Agreement and so forth. Um, in our presidency, during um, the active engagement from all countries, because they really felt this is a critical issue and they want to reach a consensus, we were able uh, basically to reach one consensus paragraph that is related to the Paris Agreement that shows the commitment for all countries uh, to it. Yes, so there are difficulties that happen through the process, uh, but at the end of the day, the commitment of the countries to reach a consensus, that's what helped us a lot to reach the end point. So you talked about, uh, you know, this Riyadh is, is uh, you know, uh, you know a, a stretch of the track between Osaka and, and Italy. Uh, what what advice uh, would you give to your your counterparts, your Italian counterparts, as they prepare for their G20 summit in October next month? Um, I mean, so, some of the countries in, in in the G20. I mean, they have been holding presidency yeah. even before, especially the, as you know the the the, uh, the G7. Uh, but what we have promised from the beginning, I mean, even before we called the presidency and at the beginning of our conversation, I said, uh, there is no textbook. What we have done basically, not only at the policy aspect, but also at the operational aspect, at the logistic, at the media, we have basically all the knowledge that we accumulated along with all the analysis that was done over the history of the G20. We accumulated all of these in a handbook and basically we gave it to the future G20 presidency. Uh, this is what we have done. We felt it's it's our responsibility. We have accumulated so much knowledge and we we really want to 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 pass it to the to the next presidency. And um Domestically, at home, what's the legacy for Saudi Arabia? As you you said at the very beginning, this was you 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 essentially went at this with a blank slate, so you built it all from scratch. What's left behind? What you know? What's the legacy with the G20 for Saudi Arabia? I would say one thing: um, those who work on the G20. Um, um, which many of them, by the way, are, are youth. Uh, this is the human capital that will be left, um, that's already been left uh, after the G20 uh, 
uh, that will continue um, uh, to sharpen their skills um, in terms of policy, negotiation, event planning, and so forth. This is the long-lasting policies because those people who work at the G20, now, now they are in a different part of the government, executing um, uh, the, the government vision for the future, vision 2050. Um, uh, so those people, they acquire a unique international skills that now they are able basically to put it um, um, into place in order to execute uh, uh, domestic policies that will take the country to, to, to a higher level in the future. How do you feel like you personally grew from this experience? I mean, you, you've left, you left the IMF, you came back to the IMF, there was this period there where you did a patriotic duty, frankly, for your country. Um, what, what's, what is one thing that you would take away from the experience personally that, that you really liked and that will live with you forever? Um, that uh, the world is more complex than 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 you think. Uh, 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 yes, I mean economics is is a fascinating area. It's helped you to know lots of issues, but when you get into the t the, the G20, it's not only about economics. You would find lots of emphasis in two things: one, in the social economic issues, health, employment jobs, climate, and all of that. So this basically, it helps you to, to, to nurture yourself and to be able to deeply understand how issues are really interconnected. And, and, and second is that uh, the, the political aspect and, and, the, and the commitment of, uh, of the members uh, to discuss the issues openly, uh, to debate them, and then to, to, to reach an agreement. Uh, this journey is pretty much fascinating. I, I truly believe that those who engage uh, in, in, a, in a G20, um, uh, they experience a unique, um, uh, a unique experience uh, in, in, in their life um, uh, because it, it doesn't. It, it's likely to happen once in, in, in your life uh, time or in your career, um, and, and it's really worth it.